this is a work of non-fiction. Nonetheless, some of the names and personal characteristics of the individuals involved have been changed in order to disguise their identities. Any resulting resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental and unintentional. As of the time of initial publication, the URLs displayed in this book link or refer to existing websites on the Internet. Penguin Random House LLC is not responsible for, and should not be deemed to endorse or recommend, any website other than its own or any content available on the Internet, including without limitation at any website, blog page, information page that is not created by Penguin Random House. Copyright Copyright 2018 by Breen Brown All Rights Reserved. Published in the United States by Random House, an imprint and division of Penguin Random House LLC, New York. Random House and the House Colophon are registered trademarks of Penguin Random House LLC. Library of Congress Cataloging and Publication Data Names, Brown, Breen, Author. Title, Dare to Lead, Brave Work, Tough Conversations, Whole Hearts, Breen Brown. Description, New York, Random House, left square bracket 2018 right square bracket vertical bracket includes index. Identifiers LCC in 2018048094 vertical bracket ISBN 9780399592522 hardback vertical bracket ISBN 9780399592546 epic vertical bracket ISBN 9781984854054 32, International Edition, Subjects LCSH Leadership. Classification LCCHD 57.7.B764 2018 Vertical Bracket DDC 658.4 slash 92M-DC 23 LC Record Available at HTTPS colon slash slash LCCN.LOC.gov slash 2018038094 Abac ISBN 9780399592000 546 randomhousebooks.com cover design, Designhaus Creative Studio. V5.3.2ip. Contents. Cover title page copyright a note from Breen. Introduction, Brave Leaders and Courage Cultures. Part 1, Rumbling with Vulnerability Section 1, The Moment and the Myths Section 2, The Call to Courage Section 3, The Armory Section 4, Shame and Empathy Section 5, Curiosity and Grounded Confidence. Part 2, Living into Our Values. Part 3, Braving Trust. Part 4, Learning to Rise. Dedication Acknowledgements Notes by Breen Brown about the author. People often ask me if I still get nervous when I speak in public. The answer is yes. I'm always nervous. Experience keeps me from being scared, but I'm still nervous. First, people are offering me their most precious gift and their time. Time is, hands down, our most coveted, most and renewable resource. If being on the receiving end of one of life's most valuable gifts fails to leave you with a lump in your throat or butterflies in your stomach, then you're not paying attention. Second, speaking is vulnerable. I don't memorize my lines or have a set shtick that I do verbatim. Effective speaking is about the unpredictable and uncontrollable art of connection. Even though it's just me on stage and possibly 10,000 people sitting in folding chairs in a convention center, I try to look into as many pairs of eyes as I can. So, yes. I'm always nervous. I have a couple of tricks that I've developed over the past several years that help me stay centered. Even though it makes event production teams crazy, I always ask for the stage lights to be at 50%. When they're at 100%, you can't see the audience at all and I don't like talking into the void. I need to see enough faces to know if we are in sync. Are the words and images pulling us together or pushing us apart? Are they recognizing their experiences in my stories? People make very specific faces when they are hearing something that rings true for them. They nod and smile and sometimes cover their faces with their hands. When it's not landing, I get the side tilt. And less laughter. I have another trick I use when anxious event organizers try encouraging me to up my game by describing the status of the audience members. An organizer might say, hey, Breen, just so you know, the audience tonight includes top military brass. 
They'll mention the high-level corporate leaders, elite members of this or that super special group, the top glass ceiling breakers in the world, or, my favorite, these actually are rocket scientists who will probably hate what you're saying, so stick to the data. This strategy is often employed, when the audience seems somewhat resistant, because they don't know, why I'm there, or, worst case scenario, they don't know, why they've been forced to be there with me. In these cases, my strategy is a take on the classic picture the audience naked trick. Rather than picturing naked people sitting in auditorium chairs, which just doesn't work for me, I picture people without the armor of their titles, positions, power, or influence. When I spot the woman in the audience who has her lips pursed and her arms tightly folded across her chest, I picture what she looked like in third grade. If I'm hooked by the guy who keeps shaking his head and making comments like winners aren't weak at work, I try to picture him holding a child or sitting with his therapist. Or, honestly, sitting with the therapist I think he should see. Before I go on stage, I whisper the word people, three or four times to myself. People. 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 This strategy was born out of desperation a decade ago, back in 2008, when I gave what I consider my first talk to a corporate leadership audience. I had lectured at grand rounds in hospitals and done many behavioral health talks, but the difference between those experiences and even just standing in that green room was palpable. I was trying to find a place to set up camp in a room with 20 other speakers, each of us waiting to be called to do our TED-style 20-minute talk at this day-long event, when that lonely feeling of not belonging and being out of place started washing over me. I first checked if it was a gender thing, because, to date, I'm often still the only female speaker backstage. That wasn't it. It wasn't homesickness, because I was 30 minutes from my house in Houston. When I heard the event organizers talking to the audience, I pulled back a small section of the heavy velvet curtains that separated the green room from the auditorium and peeked out. It was like a Brooks Brothers convention M-rows of mostly men in white shirts and very dark suits. I shut the curtain and started to panic. The guy standing closest to me was a young, super energetic speaker who, you could tell, had never met a stranger. I'm not even sure what he was saying to me, when I cut him off in mid-sentence, oh, my god. These are all views in M-executives. Or FBI agents. He chuckled. Yeah, mate. It's a conference for C-levels. Didn't they tell you that? The blood drained out of my face, as I slowly sat down on the empty chair next to me. He explained, you know, CEOs, COOs, CFUS, CMOS, cross ellipsis points all I could think was, there is no way I'm going to tell this guy the truth. He knelt next to me and put his arm on my shoulder. You okay, mate? Maybe it was the Australian accent, or the big smile, or the name Pete that made this guy instantly trustworthy, but I turned to him and said, they did tell me it was a C-level audience. But I thought, that meant down to earth. Like these are real C-level people. Salt of the earth. S-E-level. Through a huge, booming laugh he said, that's brilliant. You should use that. I looked him in the eye and said, it's not funny. I'm talking about shame and the danger of not believing we're enough. There was a long pause, before I added, ironically. By that time a woman from Washington, D.C., who was doing her 20-minute talk on the oil trade, was standing beside us. She looked at me and said, shame m as in the emotion. Like I'm ashamed. Before I could even admit that was true, she said, interesting. Better you than me, and walked off. I'll never forget Pete's response. Look out into that audience again. These are people. Just people. And no one talks to them about shame, and every single one of them is in it up to their eyeballs. Just like the rest of us. Look at them. They are people. I think either the truth of his advice or the thought of my topic got to him, because he stood up, squeezed my shoulder, and walked away. I quickly pulled out my laptop and searched popular MBA and business terms. Maybe I can put some hard corners on my topic by weaving in a little business lingo. Damn. It was like reading Old Hat, New Hat, the Berenstein Bears book that my kids loved, when they were little. It's the story of Paca Bear going to the hat store and trying on 50 different hats to replace his old, rag hat. But of course all of the new hats have issues, too loose, too tight, too heavy, too light. 
It goes on, for pages, until it reaches the logical conclusion of keeping the old, ugly hat that fits perfectly. I started whispering some of the terms to myself to see if I could pull it off. Long pole item. Too tall. Critical pathway. Too trafficy. Skip level. Too hopskitchy. Incentive. Maybe. Incentivize. Wait. What? I call bullshit. You can't just add eyes to stuff. Mercifully, my husband, Steve, called and interrupted my dear Einstein Bear's business search. How are you? Are you ready? He asked. No. It's a total cluster, I said. After I explained the situation, he was very quiet. Using his serious voice M- the one reserved for panicked parents calling for medical advice, he's a pediatrician, or for me, when I'm losing my mind M- he said, Breen, promise me that you will not use any of those dumbass words. I mean it. I was near tears at this point. I whispered, I promise. But you. Should see these people. It's like a funeral. And not a funeral in my family, not a fancy wranglers and an appropriately somber cowboy hat funeral. It's like a British funeral. Or a graveside service on the Sopranos. He said, take that guy's advice and look out at the audience again. They're really just people. Like you and me. Like our friends. There are people there you know, right? These are real people with real lives and real problems. Do your thing. He told me he loved me, and we hung up. I stood up and pulled the curtain back one more time. The room was darker, and a speaker was talking from the stage. I wanted to see the audience members' faces but my side view made it tough. Then, like a slow motion scene from a movie, a large bald guy turned to whisper something to the guy sitting next to him, and I saw his face. I gasped and pulled the curtains closed. I know, that guy. We got sober around the same time, and we used to go to the same AA meetings in the mid-90s. I couldn't believe it. As I sat there wondering if I was in the middle of a miracle, my new friend Pete walked up. You doing okay? He asked. I smiled. Yeah. I think so. Just people, right? He patted me on the shoulder and told me that a woman was standing outside the green room door asking to talk to me. I thanked him again and went to check on my visitor. It was my neighbor. At the time she was a managing partner at a law firm, and she was attending the event with several other partners and a few clients. She told me that she just wanted to say hello and wish me luck. I gave her a quick hug, and she went back toward the auditorium doors. I walked across the lobby and stepped outside for some fresh air. She may never know what it meant for me to see her that day. I appreciated the kindness and connection, but it was the simple act of seeing her that made all the difference for me. Yes, she's a partner in a prestigious law firm, but she's also a daughter who I know recently moved her mother from assisted living to hospice. She's also a mother and a wife going through a difficult divorce. People. 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 The experience that day was electric. The audience and I were totally in sync and deeply connected. We belly laughed. We cried. The audience leaned in so hard to what I was sharing about shame, unattainable expectations, and perfectionism that I thought they would fall out of their seats. We experienced the surge. Before I went back to school to study social work in the early 90s, I was climbing the corporate ladder at a Fortune 10 company. I left that job to study social work, and I didn't think then that I would return to that world, which, in my mind, was the opposite of what I cared about M-Purge, connection, and meaning. For the first several years of my doctoral work, I focused on systems change management and organizational environmental scanning. I eventually shifted direction and wrote my dissertation on connection and vulnerability. I never thought I'd return to the field of organizational development, because I didn't really love it at that time. The talk I gave that day marked a significant turning point in my career. The heartfelt experience I had with that audience made me question whether I had made a mistake by framing two of my interests as mutually exclusive. What would it look like to combine courage, connection, and meaning with the world of work? The other weird thing that happened that day resulted in a major shift in my speaking career. There were several speaking agents at the event, and after the audience evaluations were shared with the speakers and their agents, I got calls from all of them asking about my career goals. 
After a couple of months of soul-searching, I decided to find my way back to the world of leadership and organizational development. But this time, with a new focus, people, people, people. It's not the critic who counts. In 2010, two years after that event, I wrote The Gifts of Imperfection, a book that introduced my research on the 10 guideposts, for wholeheartedness. It had a very wide audience including corporate, community, faith, and non-profit leaders. Two years after that, in 2012, I sharpened my focus on vulnerability and courage and wrote Daring Greatly. This was my first book that included findings on what I was learning about leadership and what I was observing in my work with organizations. The epigraph of Daring Greatly is this quote from Theodore Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again ellipsis points who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails, while daring greatly. I found this quote during a particularly challenging time in my career. My TEDx Houston talk on vulnerability was going viral, and while there was a groundswell of support for the talk, many of the criticisms were cruel and personal, confirming my biggest fears about putting myself out there. This was the perfect quote to capture how I felt and my growing resolve to go full on Tom Petty and not back down. The courage to be vulnerable is not about winning or losing, it's about the courage to show up when you can't predict or control the outcome. Just as the quote resonated so deeply with my desire to live a brave life despite the growing cynicism and fear-mongering in the world, it resonated with leaders everywhere. For many, daring greatly was their introduction to the quote, while others had it hanging in their offices or homes for years and felt a kindred connection. I recently saw a picture of LeBron James's game shoes, and man in the arena was written on the side. I followed up Daring Greatly very quickly with Rising Strong M-A book that explores the process that the most resilient of my research participants use to get up after a fall. It felt like a mandate to write it, because the only thing I know for sure after all of this research is that, if you're going to dare greatly, you're going to get your ass kicked at some point. If you choose courage, you will absolutely know failure, disappointment, setback, even heartbreak. That's why we call it courage. That's why it's so rare. In 2016, I combined the research from Daring Greatly and Rising Strong to develop a courage-building program, and we launched Brave Leaders Incorporated to offer online learning and in-person facilitation of the work. Within one year, we were working with 50 companies and close to 10,000 leaders. The next year brought Braving the Wilderness, a book about the courage to belong to ourselves, as a prerequisite for true belonging, and the dangers of spending our lives trying to fit in and hustle for acceptance. It was a topic I felt called to research and write in the midst of increased polarization, rampant dehumanization of people who are different from us, and our growing inability to ditch the echo chambers for real critical thinking. Over the past two years, our team has researched, evaluated, failed, iterated, listened, observed, watched, grown, and learned more than we could ever have imagined. And if that wasn't enough, I've had the opportunity to sit with and learn from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I can't wait to share what I've learned, how it can completely change, how we show up with each other, why it works, why it's really hard in places, and where I keep screwing up, just to keep it real. I have one deceptively simple and somewhat selfish goal for this book, I desperately want to share everything I've learned with you. I want to take my two decades of research and my experiences inside hundreds of organizations to give you a practical, no BS actionable book about what it takes to be a daring leader. I say deceptively simple, because the data informing what's presented in this book are the culmination of Interview data collected over the past 20 years new research including interviews with 150 global C-level and C-level leaders on the future of leadership program evaluation research from our Brave Leaders Incorporated. Courage building work data collected during a three-year instrument development study on daring leadership.
Coding and making sense of 400,000 pieces of data is already complex, and the more committed I am to translating the data into actionable, research-based practices, the more painstakingly precise I need to be with the data and the more testing I need to do. The selfish part of my goal stems from wanting to be a better leader myself. Over the past five years, I've transitioned from research. Professor to research professor and founder and CEO. The first hard and humbling lesson. Regardless of the complexity of the concepts, studying leadership is way easier than leading. When I think about my personal experiences with leading over the past few years, the only endeavors that have required the same level of self-awareness and equally high-level comms plans are being married for 24 years and parenting. And that's saying something. I completely underestimated the pull on my emotional bandwidth, the sheer determination it takes to stay calm under pressure, and the weight of continuous problem-solving and decision-making. Oh, yeah and the sleepless nights. My other quasi-selfish goal is this, I want to live in a world with braver, bolder leaders, and I want to be able to pass that kind of world on to my children. I define a leader as anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes, and who has the courage to develop that potential. From corporations, non-profits, and public sector organizations to governments, activist groups, schools, and faith communities, we desperately need more leaders who are committed to courageous, wholehearted leadership and who are self-aware enough to lead from their hearts, rather than an evolved leaders who lead from hurt and fear. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I told Steve that I wanted to write a book that would change how the reader thinks about leading, would result in at least one meaningful behavior change, and could be read cover to cover on one flight. He laughed and asked, Houston to Singapore? He knows that's the longest flight I've ever endured, Moscow was just halfway. I smiled and said, no. New York to Los Angeles. With a short delay. Brave leaders and courage cultures. I've always been told, write what you need to read. What I need as a leader, and what every leader I've worked with over the past several years has asked for, is a practical playbook for putting the lessons from daring greatly and rising strong into action. There are even a few learnings from braving the wilderness that can help us create a culture of belonging at work. If you've read these books, expect some familiar lessons with new context, stories, tools, and examples related to our work lives. If you haven't read these books m-no problem. I'll cover everything you need to know. The language, tools, and skills described in these chapters require courage and serious practice. Yet they are straightforward and, I believe, accessible and actionable to everyone holding this book. The barriers and obstacles to daring leadership are real and sometimes fierce. But what I've learned from both the research and my own life is that as long as we name them, stay curious, and keep showing up, they don't have the power to stop us from being brave. We built a dare to lead hub on brennabrown.com, where you can find resources including a free downloadable workbook for anyone who wants to put this book further into action as you read. I highly recommend it. As we learned from the research we did for Rising Strong, we know that the way to move information from your head to your heart is through your hands. There are also leadership book recommendations and role-play videos that you can watch as part of building your own courage skills. The videos won't take the place of putting this work into practice, but they will give you some idea of what it can look like, of where it gets hard, and of how to circle back when you inevitably make a mistake. Additionally, you'll find a downloadable glossary of the language, tools, and skills that I'm discussing in the book. Terms included in the glossary are bolded throughout the book. What stands in the way becomes the way we started our interviews with senior leaders with one question, what, if anything, about the way people are leading today needs to change in order for leaders to be successful in a complex, rapidly. Changing environment, where we are faced with seemingly intractable challenges and an insatiable demand for innovation? There was one answer across the interviews, we need braver leaders and more courageous cultures. When we followed up to understand the specific why behind the call for braver leadership, the research took a critical turn. There wasn't just one answer. There were close to 50 answers, and many of them weren't intuitively connected to courage. 
Leaders talked about everything from critical thinking and the ability to synthesize and analyze information to building trust, rethinking educational systems, inspiring innovation, finding common political ground amid growing polarization, making tough decisions, and the importance of empathy and relationship building in the context of machine learning and artificial intelligence. We kept peeling the metaphorical onion by asking, can you break down the specific skills that you believe underpin brave leadership? I was surprised by how much the research participants struggled to answer this question. Just under half of the leaders we interviewed initially talked about courage as a personality trait, not a skill. They typically approached the question about specific skills with a well, you either have it or you don't answer. We stayed curious and kept pushing for observable behaviors. What does it look like, if you have it? Just over 80% of the leaders, including those who believed that courage is behavioral, couldn't identify the specific skills, however, they could immediately and passionately talk about problematic behaviors and cultural norms that corrode trust and courage. Luckily, the idea of starting, where people are is a tenet of both grounded theory research and social work, and it's exactly what I do. As much time, as I spend trying to understand the way, I spend ten times as much researching what gets in the way. For example, I didn't set out to study shame, I wanted to understand connection and empathy. But if you don't understand how shame can unravel connection in a split second, you don't really get connection. I didn't set out to study vulnerability, it just happens to be. The big barrier to almost everything we want from our lives, especially courage. As Marcus Aurelius taught us, what stands in the way becomes the way. Here are the 10 behaviors and cultural issues that leaders identified as getting in our way in organizations across the world. 1. We avoid tough conversations, including giving honest, productive feedback. Some leaders attributed this to a lack of courage, others to a lack of skills, and, shockingly, more than half talked about a cultural norm of nice and polite that's leveraged as an excuse to avoid tough conversations. Whatever the reason, there was saturation across the data that the consequence is a lack of clarity, diminishing trust and engagement, and an increase in problematic behavior, including passive-aggressive behavior, talking behind people's backs, pervasive back-channel communication, or the meeting after the meeting, gossip, and the dirty yes, when I say yes to your face and then no behind your back. 2. Rather than spending a reasonable amount of time proactively acknowledging and addressing the fears and feelings that show up during change and upheaval, we spend an unreasonable amount of time managing problematic behaviors. 3. Diminishing trust caused by lack of connection and empathy. 4. Not enough people are taking smart risks or creating and sharing bold ideas to meet changing demands and the insatiable need for innovation. When people are afraid of being put down or ridiculed for trying something and failing, or even for putting forward a radical new idea, the best you can expect is status quo and groupthink. 5. We get stuck and defined by setbacks, disappointments, and failures, so instead of spending resources on cleanup to ensure that consumers, stakeholders, or internal processes are made whole, we are spending too much time and energy reassuring team members who are questioning their contribution and value. 6. Too much shame and blame, not enough accountability and learning. 7. People are opting out of vital conversations about diversity and inclusivity, because they fear looking wrong, saying something wrong, or being wrong. Choosing our own comfort over hard conversations is the epitome of privilege, and it corrodes trust and moves us away from meaningful and lasting change. 8. When something goes wrong, individuals and teams are rushing into ineffective or unsustainable solutions rather than staying with problem identification and solving. When we fix the wrong thing for the wrong reason, the same problems continue to surface. It's costly and demoralizing. 9. Organizational values are gauzy and assessed in terms of aspirations rather than actual behaviors that can be talked, measured, and evaluated. 10. Perfectionism and fear are keeping people from learning and growing. I think most of us can look at this list and quickly recognize not only the challenges in our organizations, but our own internal struggles to show up and lead through discomfort. These may be work behaviors and organizational culture concerns, but what underlies all of them are deeply human issues. After finding the roadblocks, our job was to identify the specific courage-building skill sets that people need to address these problems.
We conducted more interviews, developed instruments, and tested them with MBA and MBA students enrolled at the Jones Graduate School of Business at Rice University, the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania. We worked until we found the answers. Then we tested it, improved it, and tested it again. Let's unpack what we learned. The Heart of Daring Leadership 1. You can't get to courage without rumbling with vulnerability. Embrace the suck. At the heart of daring leadership is a deeply human truth that is rarely acknowledged, especially at work. Courage and fear are not mutually exclusive. Most of us feel brave and afraid at the exact same time. We feel vulnerable. Sometimes all day long. During those in the arena moments that Roosevelt described, when we are pulled between our fear and our call to courage, we need shared language, skills, tools, and daily practices that can support us through the rumble. The word rumble has become more than just a weird West Side Story way to say, let's have a real conversation, even if it's tough. It's become a serious intention and a behavioral cue or reminder. A rumble is a discussion, conversation, or meeting defined by a commitment to lean into vulnerability, to stay curious and generous, to stick with the messy middle of problem identification and solving, to take a break and circle back when necessary, to be fearless in owning our parts, and, as psychologist Harriet Lerner teaches, to listen with the same passion with which we want to be heard. More than anything else, when someone says, let's rumble, it cues me to show up with an open heart and mind so we can serve the work and each other, not our egos. Our research led to a very clear, very hopeful finding, courage is a collection of four skill sets that can be taught, observed, and measured. The four skill sets are rumbling with vulnerability, living into our values, braving trust, learning to rise. The foundational skill of courage building is the willingness and Ability to rumble with vulnerability. Without this core skill, the other three skill sets are impossible to put into practice. Consider this carefully, our ability to be daring leaders will never be greater than our capacity for vulnerability. Once we start to build vulnerability skills, we can start to develop the other skill sets. The goal of this book is to give you language and specifics on the tools practices, and behaviors that are critical for building the muscle memory for living these concepts. We've now tested this approach in more than 50 organizations and with approximately 10,000 individuals who are learning these skills on their own or in teams. From the Gates Foundation to show, from small family-owned businesses to Fortune 50 companies, to multiple branches of the U.S. military, we have found this process to have significant positive impact, not just on the way leaders show up with their teams, but also on how their teams perform. 2. Self-awareness and self-love matter. Who we are is how we lead. So often we think of courage as an inherent trait, however, it is less about who people are, and more about how they behave and show up in difficult situations. Fear is the emotion at the center of that list of problematic behaviors and culture issues M-it's precisely what you'd expect to find as the underlying barrier to courage. However, all of the daring leaders we interviewed talked about experiencing many types of fear on a regular basis, which means that feeling fear is not the barrier. The true underlying obstacle to brave leadership is how we respond to our fear. The real barrier to daring leadership is our armor and dash the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that we use to protect ourselves when we aren't willing and able to rumble with vulnerability. While we'll learn tools and build skills in the following chapters, we'll also assess what gets in the way of building courage, especially because we can expect our armor to show up and pose resistance to new ways of doing things and new ways of being. Practicing self-compassion and having patience with ourselves are essential in this process. 3. Courage is contagious. To scale daring leadership and build courage in teams and organizations, we have to cultivate a culture in which brave work, tough conversations, and whole hearts are the expectation, and armor is not necessary or rewarded. If we want people to fully show up, to bring their whole selves including their unarmored, whole hearts m so that we can innovate, solve problems, and serve people m we have to be vigilant about creating a culture in which people feel safe, seen, heard, and respected. Daring leaders must care for and be connected to the people they lead. The data made clear that care and connection are irreducible requirements for wholehearted, productive relationships between leaders and team members. 
This means that if we do not have a sense of caring toward someone we lead and or we don't feel connected to that person, we have two options, develop the caring and connection or find a leader who's a better fit. There's no shame in this M-We've all experienced the kind of disconnection that doesn't get better despite our strongest efforts. Understanding that commitment to care and connection is the minimum threshold, we need real courage to recognize when we can't fully serve the people we lead. Given the reality of the world we live in today, that means leaders M-U and I M-Must create and hold spaces that rise to a higher standard of behavior than what we experience in the news, on TV, and in the streets. And for many, the culture at work may even need to be better than what they experience in their own home. Sometimes leadership strategies make us better partners and parents. As I often tell teachers M-Some of our most important leaders M-We can't always ask our students to take off the armor at home, or even on their way to school, because their emotional and physical safety may require self-protection. But what we can do, and what we are ethically called to do, is create a space in our schools and classrooms where all students can walk in and, for that day or hour, take off the crushing weight of their armor, hang it on a rack, and open their heart to truly being seen. We must be guardians of a space that allows students to breathe and be curious and explore the world and be who they are without suffocation. They deserve one place, where they can rumble with vulnerability and their hearts can exhale. And what I know from the research is that we should never underestimate the benefit to a child of having a place to belong M-Even 1 M-Where they can take off their armor. It can and often does change the trajectory of their life. If the culture in our school, organization, place of worship, or even family requires armor because of issues like racism, classism, sexism, or any manifestation of fear-based leadership, we can't expect wholehearted engagement. Likewise, when our organization rewards armoring behaviors like blaming, shaming, cynicism, perfectionism, and emotional stoicism, we can't expect innovative work. You can't fully grow and contribute behind armor. It takes a massive amount of energy just to carry it around M-Sometimes it takes all of our energy. The most powerful part of this process for us was seeing a list of behaviors emerge that are not hardwired. Everything above is teachable, observable, and measurable, whether you're 14 or 40. For the research participants who were initially convinced that courage is determined by genetic destiny, the interview process alone proved to be a catalyst for change. One leader told me, I'm in my late 50s and it wasn't until today that I realized I was taught every single one of these behaviors growing up M-by either my parents or my coaches. When I get down to the nitty-gritty, I can almost remember each lesson M-How, and when I learned it. We could and should be teaching this to everyone. This conversation was an important reminder to me that time can wear down our memories of tough lessons until what was, once a difficult learning fades into this is just who I am as a person. The skill sets that make up courage are not new, they've been aspirational leadership skills for as long as there have been leaders. Yet we haven't made great progress in developing these skills in leaders, because we don't dig into the humanity of this work M-It's too messy. It's much easier to talk about what we want and need than it is to talk about the fears, feelings, and scarcity, the belief that there's not enough, that get in the way of achieving all of it. Basically, and perhaps ironically, we don't have the courage for real talk about courage. But it's time. And if you want to call these soft skills, after you've tried putting them into practice M-Go for it. I dare you. Until then, find a home for your armor, and I'll see you in the arena. Teehee moment the universe put the Roosevelt quote in front of me, three lessons came into sharp focus. The first one is what I call the physics of vulnerability. It's pretty simple, if we are brave enough often enough, we will fall. Daring is not saying I'm willing to risk failure. Daring is saying I know I will eventually fail, and I'm still all in. I've never met a brave person who hasn't known disappointment, failure, even heartbreak. Second, the Roosevelt quote captures everything I've learned about vulnerability. The definition of vulnerability, as the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure first emerged in my work two decades ago, and has been validated by every study I've done since, including this research on leadership. Vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. 
We've asked thousands of people to describe vulnerability to us over the years, and these are a few of the answers that directly pierce the emotion. The first date after my divorce, talking about race with my team, trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, starting my own business, watching my child leave for college, apologizing to a colleague about how I spoke to him in a meeting, sending my son to orchestra practice knowing how badly he wants to make first chair and knowing there's a really good chance he will not make the orchestra at all, waiting for the doctor to call back, giving feedback, getting feedback, getting fired, firing someone. Across all of our data there's not a shred of empirical evidence that vulnerability is weakness. Are vulnerable experiences easy? No. Can they make us feel anxious and uncertain? Yes. Do they make us want to self-protect? Always. Does showing up for these experiences with a whole heart and no armor require courage? Absolutely. The third thing I learned has turned into a mandate by which I live. If you are not in the arena getting your ass kicked on occasion, I'm not interested in or open to your feedback. There are a million cheap seats in the world today filled with people who will never be brave with their lives but who will spend every ounce of energy they have hurling advice and judgment at those who dare greatly. Their only contributions are criticism, cynicism, and fear-mongering. If you're criticizing from a place where you're not also putting yourself on the line, I'm not interested in what you have to say. We have to avoid the cheap seats feedback and stay armor-free. The research participants who do both of those well have one hack in common, get clear on whose opinions of you matter. We need to seek feedback from those people. And even if it's really hard to hear, we must bring it in and hold it until we learn from it. This is what the research taught me. Don't grab hurtful comments and pull them close to you by rereading them and ruminating on them. Don't play with them by rehearsing your baddest comeback. And whatever you do don't pull hatefulness close to your heart. Let what's unproductive and hurtful drop at the feet of your unarmored self. And no matter how much your self-doubt wants to scoop up the criticism and snuggle with the negativity so it can confirm its worst fears, or how eager the shame gremlins are to use the hurt to fortify your armor. Take a deep breath and find the strength to leave what's mean-spirited on the ground. You don't even need to stop it or pick it away. Cruelty is cheap, easy, and chicken shit. It doesn't deserve your energy or engagement. Just step over the comments and keep daring, always remembering that armor is too heavy a price to pay to engage with cheap seat feedback. Again, if we shield ourselves from all feedback, we stop growing. If we engage with all feedback, regardless of the quality and intention, it hurts too much, and we will ultimately armor up by pretending it doesn't hurt, or, worse yet, we'll disconnect from vulnerability and emotion so fully that we stop feeling hurt. When we get to the place that the armor is so thick that we no longer feel anything, we experience a real death. We've paid for self-protection by sealing off our heart from everyone, and from everything M-not just hurt, but love. No one captures the consequences of choosing that level of self-protection over love better than C.S. Lewis. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket M-safe, dark, motionless, airless M-it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Rumble Tool, The Square Squad. When we define ourselves by what everyone thinks, it's hard to be brave. When we stop caring about what anyone thinks, we are too armored for authentic connection. So how do we get clear on whose opinions of us matter? Here's the solution we shared in Daring Greatly, get a 1 inch by 1 inch piece of paper and write down the names of the people whose opinions of you matter. It needs to be small, because it forces you to edit. Fold it and put it in your wallet. Then take 10 minutes to reach out to those people m-your square squad m-and share a little gratitude. You can keep it simple, I'm getting clear on whose opinions matter to me. Thank you for being one of those people. I'm grateful that you care enough to be honest and real with me. If you need a rubric for choosing the people, here's the best I have. The people on your list should be the people who love you not despite your vulnerability and imperfections, but because of them. 
The people on your list should not be yes people. This is not the suck-up squad. They should be people who respect you enough to rumble with the vulnerability of saying I think you were out of your integrity in that situation, and you need to clean it up and apologize. I'll be here to support you through that. Or yes, that was a huge setback, but you were brave and I'll dust you off and cheer you on when you go back into the arena. The four six myths of vulnerability. In Daring Greatly, I wrote about four myths surrounding vulnerability, but since I brought the courage building work into organizations and have been doing it with leaders, the data have spoken, and there are clearly six misguided myths that persist across wide variables including gender, age, race, country, ability, and culture. Myth number one, vulnerability is weakness. It used to take me a long time to dispel the myths that surround vulnerability, especially the myth that vulnerability is weakness. But in 2014, standing across from several hundred military special forces soldiers on a base in the Midwest, I decided to stop evangelizing, and I nailed my argument with a single question. I looked at these brave soldiers and said, vulnerability is the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Can you give me a single example of courage that you've witnessed in another soldier or experienced in your own life that did not require experiencing vulnerability? Complete silence. Crickets. Finally, a young man spoke up. He said, no, ma'am. Three tours. I can't think of a single act of courage that doesn't require managing massive vulnerability. I've asked that question now a couple of hundred times in meeting rooms across the globe. I've asked fighter pilots and software engineers, teachers and accountants, CIA agents and CEOs, clergy and professional athletes, artists and activists, and not one person has been able to give me an example of courage without vulnerability. The weakness myth simply crumbles under the weight of the data and people's lived experiences of courage. Myth number two, I don't do vulnerability. Our daily lives are defined by experiences of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. There is no opting out, but there are two options, you can do vulnerability, or it can do you. Choosing to own our vulnerability and do it consciously means learning how to rumble with this emotion and understand how it drives our thinking and behavior so we can stay aligned with our values and live in our integrity. Pretending that we don't do vulnerability means letting fear drive our thinking and behavior without our input or even awareness, which almost always leads to acting out or shutting down. If you don't believe the data, ask someone from your square squad this question How do I act when I'm feeling vulnerable? If you're rumbling with vulnerability from a place of awareness, you won't hear anything you don't know and that you aren't actively addressing. If you subscribe to the idea of terminal uniqueness, everyone in the world but you, you will probably be on the receiving end of some tough feedback. And as much as we'd like to believe that wisdom and experience can replace the need to do vulnerability, they don't. If anything, wisdom and experience validate the importance of rumbling with vulnerability. I love this quote by Madeleine Langell, when we were children, we used to think that, when we were grown up we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. Myth number three, I can go it alone. The third myth surrounding vulnerability is I can go it alone. One line of defense that I encounter is I don't need to be vulnerable, because I don't need anyone. I'm with you. Some days I wish it were true. The problem, however, is that needing no one pushes against everything we know about human neurobiology. We are hardwired for connection. From our mirror neurons to language, we are a social species. In the absence of authentic connection, we suffer. And by authentic I mean the kind of connection that doesn't require hustling for acceptance and changing who we are to fit in. I dug deep into the work of the neuroscience researcher John K. Schiappo when I was writing Braving the Wilderness. He dedicated his career to understanding loneliness, belonging, and connection, and he makes the argument that we don't derive strength from our rugged individualism, but rather from our collective ability to plan, communicate, and work together. Our neural, hormonal, and genetic makeup support interdependence over independence. He explained, to grow to adulthood as a social species, including humans, is not to become autonomous and solitary, it's to become the one on whom others can depend. Whether we know it or not, our brain and biology have been shaped to favor this outcome. No matter how much we love White Snake M-and, 
as many of you know, I do and dash we really weren't born. To walk alone. Myth number four, you can engineer the uncertainty and discomfort out of vulnerability. I love working with tech companies and engineers. There is almost always a moment when someone suggests that we should make vulnerability easier by engineering the uncertainty and emotion right out of it. I've had people recommend everything from a texting app for hard conversations to an algorithm to predict when it's safe to be vulnerable with someone. As I mentioned in the introduction, what sometimes underpins this urge is how we think about vulnerability and the way we use the word. Many people walk into work every day with one clear task, engineer the vulnerability and uncertainty out of systems and or mitigate risk. This is true of everyone from lawyers, who often equate vulnerability with loopholes and liabilities, to engineers and other people who work in operations, security, and technology, who think of vulnerabilities as potential systems failures, to combat soldiers and surgeons, who may literally equate vulnerabilities with death. When I start talking about engaging with vulnerability and even embracing it, there can be real resistance, until I clarify that I'm talking about relational vulnerability, not systemic vulnerability. Several years ago, I was working with a group of rocket scientists, actual ones. During a break an engineer walked up to me and said, I don't do vulnerability. I can't. And that's a good thing. If I get all vulnerable, shit might fall from the sky. Literally. I smiled and said, tell me about the toughest part of your job. Is it keeping shit from falling from the sky? He said, no. We've created sophisticated systems that control for human error. It's hard work, but not the part I hate the most. Wait for it. He thought for a minute and said, it's leading the team and all the people stuff. I've got a guy who is just not a good fit. His deliverables have been off for a year. I've tried everything. I got really tough this last time, but he almost started crying, so I wrapped up the meeting. It just didn't feel right. But now it's like I'm going to get in trouble, because I'm not even turning in his performance sheets. I said, yeah. That sounds hard. How does it feel? His response, got it. I'll sit down now. Those fields in which systemic vulnerability is equated with failure, or worse, are often the ones in which I see people struggling the most for daring leadership skills and, interestingly, the ones in which people, once they understand, are willing to really dig deep and rumble hard. Can you imagine how hard it can be to wrap your brain around the critical role vulnerability plays in leadership, when you're rewarded for eliminating vulnerability every day? Another example of this comes from Canary Wharf M-London's Financial District M- where I spent an afternoon with some very proper bankers who wondered what I was doing there and weren't afraid to ask me directly. They explained that banking is completely compliance-driven and there's no place for vulnerability. Neither the frustrated bankers nor the wonderful and forward-thinking learning and development team who invited me expected my answer. I was honest, tomorrow is my last day in London, and I really want to visit James Smith & Sons M- the famous umbrella shop that's been around since the early 1800s M- so let's try to figure out why I'm here, and if we can't, I'm out. They seemed a little miffed but interested in the deal. So I asked one question what's the biggest issue you're facing here and in your industry? There was a pause filled with some back and forth between people before the self-elected spokesperson shouted out ethical decision-making. Bloody hell.